So, as we've been building up to, you know, today we begin this new sermon series on prayer entitled, Ask, Accessing the Father's Heart Through Prayer. And I got to confess to you, this is something that is both exciting to me and also overwhelming to me as I think about it. It's exciting because prayer is something that is near and dear to my heart, and yet it's overwhelming because the subject is so big, it's so huge, I feel inadequate to be able to say all that I want to say about it, or that needs to be said about it. There were certain medieval theologians, in fact, who said that they felt that human language was incapable of expressing the divine. I kind of feel like that today as we begin serious talking on prayer, and yet I'm trusting that by God's grace, He'll use my weakness, He'll use my inability to show His superior power and strength as I believe He's going to inspire all of us to a deeper, more consistent practice of prayer. And that is absolutely, that's my hope and that's my promise to all of you starting today, all right? My goal and my aim in this series, by God's grace, is to inspire us all to prayer, to stir within us what Jonathan Edwards referred to as our religious affections, But it is not at all to try and guilt, uh, uh, shame anyone in here to to praying more. That's that's never going to be the goal or the aim of this series. Why? Because those things don't actually motivate you. Or if they do, they motivate you for about a week, and then you drop it. And they don't actually transform you. But, as Thomas Cranmer once wrote, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And that is my prayer, and that is my goal for us, that we would grow in our love of prayer. We've said that we want prayer to be the foundation of everything we do as a church, and we've made, I think, great strides towards that goal. And yet, there's probably, while there's nobody in here who would be surprised to hear that Christians should pray, nobody in here is going to be like, well, what? Christians are supposed to do that? We know that, and yet... So many of us, we still have confusion about the subject of prayer. We've got so many questions about prayer. What is prayer, even? Um, Why why do we do prayer at all? Why should we pray at all? If God already knows what He's going to do, why would we pray? Or if I should be praying, how do I do it? Maybe I'm not doing it right. God doesn't seem to be answering any of my prayers. How should I be praying? We're going to be touching on all of those questions over the next 10 weeks. And honestly, it's my prayer that I would be growing right alongside with you in my own love, in my own consistency in my prayer life. Because guess what? There's not a person in here, I don't care how long you've been praying, that doesn't have some room to grow. We've all got some room to grow. So my plan is to grow right along with you as we do this. And given that desire to grow, which I praise in all of us, as well as our stated desire as a church to see our city and world transformed and renewed, I can't think of anywhere better to begin this series on prayer together than Jesus' description in Mark chapter 11 of what he intended his church to be, namely, a house of prayer. So, would you turn in your Bibles right now to Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. If you're using this brown pew Bible, it's on page 717. And when you found that, would you stand with me and we will... Read together our passage this morning. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. Now heading into this, this is the time period right now. It's Passion Week. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed towards the cross. 
And just before our passage is where we see the triumphal entry, what's called Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, people putting blankets and palm branches before him, shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus stops into town, checks it out, but it's late at night, so he heads out to Bethany, just outside the city, about two miles, to spend the night. Let me read this in verse 12. Follow with me. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter remembered and said "Jesus, to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now let me pray for us and commit this time to God as we start this series together. Father, as we come to your word now, we're asking that by your spirit you would empower this time together, empower me to speak your words. I'm praying that you would uh, work in each of our hearts and minds, open our ears, God, to receive what you want to say to us, and then when you reveal that, give us courage and strength to do what you're showing us. pray this would be a, a, a transformational time that we begin this Sunday where we learn what it is to meet with you and access you in prayer, that it would be a time that would change us, Father. And we're asking for that same change that would begin today as we come to your word here. You've told us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Purpose. Purpose is something we talk about fairly frequently here as a church family, and particularly we talk about purpose in design, why something was made. In fact, even last Sunday, we were talking about identity, gospel identity, and, and, and the touching on the purpose for which God originally designed us, a purpose that was broken and marred by sin in which God is calling us in Jesus to recover. But I don't know about you, but growing up as a young boy, there's all kinds of examples of places where there was a lot of things that had an intended purpose, which I used in very different ways, which I violated or, or changed those purposes in ways I probably shouldn't have. Uh, one of those ways would certainly be, my sister is here this morning, she'll attest to this, with her Barbie dolls. She'll tell you stories about how I would use her Barbies for target practice with my newly won pellet gun that I got for my birthday. She wasn't happy about that. Uh, using the side of my dad's 
van as a goalie net for our soccer game. Or using my mom's nice towels in the bathroom for anything. Anything other than just looking at. Because apparently there's towels that you can't actually use. They're just there to look at or for guests. As family members, you don't have access to those. And whenever I would use one of those things that was designed for one purpose, for a purpose other than what it was intended for, it would bring about all different range of emotions in people that I was misusing their things from anger, to sadness, to rage. Well, on an infinitely more serious level, when we think about next Sunday, Freedom Sunday coming up, where we are going to be praying for the instances of modern-day slavery around our world. When a child is used for a purpose contrary to their design, as debt repayment, as slave labor for prostitution, uh, uh, there's something inside, I want to say all of us, but I know it's not, like 99% of the population that stirs inside of us because I'm a human being, because I'm a, a father of young daughters, that stirs inside me a rage. And I see this. Why? Because instinctively we know and definitely biblically we know that's a violation of the intended purpose of a child. Surely a big part of our desire along with justice being brought about is that those children might be rescued out of those situations and restored to the purpose for which they were designed. Well, in our passage today we see just such a reaction from Jesus after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he enters into the temple the following day. The holy rage that Jesus demonstrates here, the indignation at seeing his father's house, the temple that was intended to be this meeting place between God and humanity, used instead as a high priest-sanctioned black market. I mean, Jesus' reaction is just off the charts, right? I mean, he's flipping tables. John's gospel tells us he's fashioning a whip out of cords and driving people out of there. I mean, he's blowing up fig trees as he walks by, and he is, he is unhappy. Which actually, for a lot of people, seems like a huge overreaction on Jesus' part. And some people will even say, that's, that's way out of character for Jesus to do something like that. Particularly if you've got a, a vision in your mind of Jesus as some sort of Zen yoga Jedi master who just spouts off intelligent sayings and then conditions his hair when he gets home each evening. If that's your picture of Jesus, it's going to be very different to read this. It's like, well, that's not, that couldn't be Jesus. And I think the reason we find Jesus' reaction so out of place and why I think this passage is so relevant to us today is because we don't understand God's intended purpose for the church. That's why this seems so out of place. Now, I'm not going to give us an ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church necessarily here, but I think we'd all agree that any picture, any understanding of the church ought to include Jesus' description of it. Right? It's probably missing something. And in verse 17 of our passage, Jesus' description of the Father's intended purpose for His house is that it is to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. Now, when you go to a, a carnival or a fair or some kind, there's a building that's filled with uh, all kinds of mirrors, funny mirrors that may make you look super tall, super short, wide, thin, whatever. What do we call that place? What? House of mirrors, fun house, sure. 
when you go to that famous international restaurant that's filled with all different varieties of pancakes. What's that place called? A house of pancakes, an international house. Let's get that right. Okay, so, so to describe anything as a house of blank, something usually means that's a place that, that's full of that thing. You definitely will find that if you go there, and it's a place that other people would characterize with that thing. They'd say, yeah, well, that's the place where you go to get pancakes. And when it comes to the church today, many people outside the church looking at a, at a church gathering on a Sunday morning, is that how they would describe it? Many people outside the church would describe this church family that meets here maybe as a, a house of religious nuts, maybe a house of bigots or judgmental people. And even within the church, uh, as we describe ourselves as this church family here, although we might have many more positive, helpful descriptions called a house of God, house of worship, how many of us would describe our church family like this, as a house of prayer? And yet here we have Jesus in our passage, and this stating that this is God's intended design for his church. This is the thing he desires his church to be characterized by, prayer. So in order to understand what that means and, and how we can work to restore that purpose, if, if that's not what it is, and that's what we need to get to, I want to look at our passage this morning in two ways. I want to show you the need for restoration and then the pathway to restoration. The need for and then the pathway to restoration. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 12 there. Follow along with me as we look at Jesus' description of prayer as the characteristic which he says should define his church. So let's look first of all at the need for restoration. The need for restoration. Now, this year, October 31st, will mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the day when we mark when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. There's a number of fascinating historical, political, motivating factors that led up to that momentous day. But for Luther, one of the motivating factors for him was that as he surveyed the the Catholic religion at that time, as he also practiced the Roman Catholic religion as an Augustinian monk, he saw some key areas of, of abuse, of neglect, of what today we might call mission drift, that were in desperate need of reform. And so, as a means of initiating these discussions among papal authorities, Luther takes these reforms, he drafts this 95 theses and posts them to the church door. But as much as Luther was calling for improvements, for reforms as it related to official church doctrine and practice, it's important to say Luther was not trying to begin some sort of new hybrid religion out of the church of the day. What he was doing was, was calling the church to return to its original design, its original purpose, which he saw laid out in the New Testament, which I take to mean that as well known as this historical period is as the Protestant Reformation, I think there's a sense in which we could also refer to it as the Protestant Restoration. He was seeking to restore the church back to its original design. And when you look at our passage here today, verses 15 through 16, uh, see Jesus coming into the temple, wrecking shop there, and then teaching in verse 17, I think we're seeing the very same thing. 
Although there are actions and behaviors that Jesus sees that need to be reformed, what verse 17 shows us is that ultimately what Jesus is seeking is a restoration. He's seeking a return to the intended design of the temple. We get some idea of what that intended design was when we flip back to Isaiah 56, verse 7, which is the verse that Jesus is quoting there when he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. There Isaiah is speaking about the extension of God's salvation to people who formerly would have been restricted from it. So Gentiles, foreigners, eunuchs, all these different people who formerly couldn't come and worship and receive salvation. It's talking about God's inclusion of those people. I want you to just take a a post-it note and stick it up because we're going to leave that for a moment and come back to it. It'll be important again in a moment because all that shows us is the all nations part of the passage Jesus quoted. What does it mean when Jesus is saying, calling them to restore this place to a house of prayer? Well, I think to understand that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, which is the very first temple, if you will, a place where God dwelt among his people and had community. They had community with each other, God and his people dwelling together in perfect harmony. For that's exactly what a temple is, really. It's a place where God's presence dwells and then his people come and meet with him, interact with him, have community with him through prayer. Without oversimplifying it, what we say uh, is prayer, what we call prayer today, very simply, it is. It's conversation. It is conversation that we are now able to have talking with the God of the universe. That's what we are enabled to do, albeit in an honoring and worshipful way. We're building relationship with our Father in heaven as we talk to him. Same way you build relationship with someone you love, by talking with them, by sharing with them. Bringing your hopes and your needs and your dreams to them. Just as Adam and Eve would have done all the way back in the Garden of Eden. But since Adam and Eve sinned and then were banished, uh, expelled from the Garden, that temple where God's presence dwelt, then all through the rest of the Bible what you see is these temporary places where God would cause His presence to dwell, especially where His people can still come and meet with Him, interact with Him. But all pointing forward to a restoration, all pointing forward to what we see in Revelation where there's no longer any temple building needed anymore because God once again dwells with his people and us with him. Looking forward very much to that day. So all through the Old Testament, we see different instances of these temporary meeting places. Uh, The tabernacle in Moses' day, uh, unsurprisingly referred to as the tent of meeting. This is where God's people would come and meet with him, where his presence dwelt specially with the Ark of the Covenant. And then when Solomon built his temple during his reign, it's actually there, I think, where we first get a real clear picture of what Jesus is referring to when he talks about this place being a house of prayer. In his dedication prayer, once the temple is completed, listen to what Solomon says. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse, beginning at verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and this plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer of your servant is praying in, the presence, in your presence this day. 
May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you have said my name shall dwell there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servants, that your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then all the verses following this, a long section after this passage describing all these different scenarios where people would pray towards the temple. Even foreigners were allowed to do this. They would pray towards the temple. And then God would, would hear their prayers because this is the place he caused his presence to dwell. They would, he would hear their prayers. He would interact with them. He would have community. And he would answer just as he did in the Garden of Eden. So, Understanding that, what we understand temple to be, I think we get a much clearer picture of what Jesus is describing in our passage now when he says this place is intended to be a house of prayer. It's a means, it's a place where God's presence dwells and his people have community with him through prayer. But it begins to beg the question, as soon as you hear that, you've got to say, well, isn't that what it already was? I mean, weren't people coming here from all different places, gathering together, praying, worshiping God, offering sacrifices to God's presence dwelling there in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain? Isn't that what this was? And the answer is yes. For Jewish people, it was. For the Jews, this absolutely was that. And yet, the answer from the perspective of any other nation, anyone else who happened to come there, was no. And we've talked a number of times, uh, different times we've met together, we've talked about the construction, how the temple was built in this second temple that was built by Herod the Great. First temple was destroyed before, and then Herod the Great builds this new temple. And the way it's structured is right in the center, you've got uh, the temple of priests, the inner court. This is where uh, the Holy of Holies was, the Ark of the Covenant. This is only the priests could enter here. And there's a level out around that, which is the court of Israel. Only Jewish men can enter here to worship. Outside this, the court of women. Only Jewish women are allowed to enter into this space. And then outside of that, much larger space, the court of Gentiles. Now, if you remember, there was a wall separating that area between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, where only Jews were allowed to enter. And there were warnings on the door, which said, anyone who is non-Jewish who goes past this wall is taking their life in their own hands. It's kind of, it's already defeating the purpose, I think, where God had called his people to be a light to the nations. And here they are saying, yeah, we don't want you to come in, though. One of the main reasons for Jesus' strong rebuke here, his claim that rather than being a house of prayer, this place had become a den of robbers, was that this massive marketplace that we hear about Jesus coming in, flipping over tables, driving people out. No one's allowed to carry their Ikea couches through or whatever. He's shutting it all down. All that, that I think, probably began well-intentioned, but it become this total, like, it was all about commerce, corruption, actually was, was financially beneficial to the high priest. All this marketplace was located directly in the court of the Gentiles. So where they're allowed to come and worship... The only place they're allowed to come, they've got a huge marketplace going on. This black market set up right in the middle. That's a little bit like us deciding upstairs where the kids are meeting for kids' church, we're going to set up a casino. Right at the same time, it's going to be right in the middle of what they're doing. And if anyone were to complain, we just say, well, listen, it's bringing a lot of great revenue into the church. And the kids, they're still getting a Bible lesson. I think it's a win-win. 
how are they supposed to interact? How are they supposed to learn when all this is going on around them? Which, follow me, means this. What Jesus was saying in verse 17 there was, no, I'm not saying you don't come here to pray, to have community with God, to meet with God yourselves. I'm saying you've taken this house, which was intended to be a place where people from all nations could come and meet with me, could come and worship God, and you've made it a place that's only about you. And we've looked at this a number of times, how, how Judaism eventually became this ethnocentric religion where everything was set up about them entirely focused inward and where they completely ignored and shut out God's command for them to be a light and a witness to the nations. So what Jesus is saying here, this house is no longer being used for the purpose for which it was intended and it needs to be restored. What that means for us today now is that our prayers, as we gather together, as we lift up our prayers to God and worship and praise and supplication and all these different ways, those prayers are never meant to be an end in themselves. They're also meant to be a witness, a testimony, a demonstration to others that they too can know and have community restored between them and the God of the universe. That's part of what we do when we pray. It means that every time you pray in the presence of someone who is not yet in a restored relationship with God, here or, or, or anywhere that you pray, you're calling them to recognize their own need for restoration. You ever thought about prayer like that? Now, no, I'm not saying that we need to make a big public spectacle when we pray, being like, listen, everybody, I'm going to be praying now to God, so watch this. I'm not saying you do that. And yet I'm also saying, when you are praying, particularly in public areas, I'm saying to not make it a secret, like it's something you're ashamed of. Come to a restaurant, and it's like, okay, look around quickly. All right, Lord Jesus, we just want to pray. Thank you. But, oh, oh, here comes the waitress with ketchup. Thank you. Yeah, no, we're good. Everything's great. Thank you. Okay, and thank you so much for uh, being here today. Amen. What? No, it's not something. We, it's, prayers are our demonstration. It's our witness to people. We have a restored relationship where we can speak with the God of the universe. So, to not hide these things, it's a, it's a restored grace one access that we have with God, a community with God of the universe. And, and, and when we're saying, when we're meeting together to pray here, when you're praying beside somebody's bed in a hospital room, when you're praying with your children at night beside their bed, each one of those places is an access that's a privilege that we have that's been bought for us, but it's not intended to end with us. It's meant to welcome and invite others into that same restored relationship. Our prayers are meant to be a witness to the nations. So that's the need for restoration. The last thing I want us to consider this morning is the pathway to restoration. How do we get there? The pathway to restoration. This is so important for us to grasp in light of everything that we're reading here in our passage because the pathway to restoration, the way we get back to that intended design is the pathway to a cross. It's the pathway to a cross. Why? Because with the coming of Jesus to earth as a man, the meeting place between God and man is no longer a place, is no longer a building. It's a person. It's a person. And we get hints of why it's different than what 
we're used to, when we consider that all this stuff we read in verses 15 through 19, Jesus comes into the temple, he's driving out money changes, flipping over tables, which is often referred in most Bible as Jesus clearing the temple, he's cleansing the temple. We see there must be something different going on because even though he does that, it's not cleared. It's not cleansed. I guarantee Jesus comes back the next day, all those same booths are there, guys are hawking all the same stuff, not, it's not cleansed, which must mean, although Jesus is highlighting the need for restoration, he hasn't actually come to bring it, at least not like this. And I believe the reason for that is because Jesus didn't ultimately come to cleanse the temple, he came to replace it. Look back at verses 12 through 15 with me. This is where they're, they're headed in from where they've been staying out in Bethany. Mark says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And in verse 20, we see that uh, later on, the next day when they're coming back into town, that fig tree that he cursed withered from the roots, dead. Now, a few things to note quickly. First of all, some have criticized this Jesus cursing of the fig tree here as kind of a childish tantrum because of what we read in verse 13. It says it was not the season for figs. It's not the season. So concluding, well, of course there weren't any figs for him to find. Why is Jesus flying off the handle like this? And I got a bit, I, when I first read this passage, I thought the same thing. Why would he, it's not the season for figs. Doesn't he know that? The answer is, and maybe some of you green thumbs would already know this, is that although it was not the season for fully ripe figs, a fig tree had many different seasons of growth. And when the fig tree was showing leaves, it would have these small fruits that would begin to form on it called pagim. I'm probably not saying that right, but that's okay. No one's going to ask you to repeat that. And, and these fruits would be found on a tree that was in leaf, and you could eat them. People ate them all the time. So no, first of all, it wasn't unreasonable for Jesus to come to a fig tree that was in leaf and expect to find some fruit on it. Second thing, people have criticized Jesus' cursing of the fig tree because so what? So what if there's not fruit on the tree? Who cares? Why does that mean he has to curse it so that it withers and dies? That's like going to Tim Hortons because you're craving Timbits, and then the lady says, oh, I'm sorry, we're out of Timbits today, and you just torch the place. May no one ever eat Timbits here again. Seems way out of line. The answer here is that Jesus is not, he's not showing off his divine power. He's not taking out his hunger rage on some kind of a helpless fig tree. All the commentators agree that by sandwiching this account of what Jesus does in the temple with this story about a fig tree on either side of it, is that Jesus is, what he's doing here is he's giving a, a living enacted parable, a living picture that they are to see picturing what Jesus is describing, what he's doing when he goes into the temple. He's teaching and he's clearing out the temple. This has significance because it's sandwiched on either side. And all through the Bible, we see fruit all over the place used to picture either faithfulness to God, something is producing much fruit, or something of unfaithfulness to God. It's fruitless or it's producing useless fruit. So what does it mean for Jesus to come to a tree that looks like it's healthy, should be producing fruit, but to find none. 
It pictures why Jesus is so provoked when he comes to the temple to see that although it looks healthy, although it looks like this thriving, bustling center of religious devotion, in the end, it's still fruitless. Why? Because it's turned entirely inward on itself. It's become contrary to the purpose for which it was designed. It's become a business. It's nothing more than a business now and not a place to come and meet with God, which should reveal to all of us today, uh, uh, just because a church is, is busy and has a whole lot of activity going on does not mean it's faithful. Those two things are not obviously together. And so the cursing and resulting withering of the fig tree pictures the righteous judgment of God that he has on his unfaithful witness. That's what he's picturing with this cursing of the fig tree. It's what Jesus pictures so witheringly in the next parable he tells down in chapter 12 there about the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. Here you've got a a picture of of men who who are stewards of of a vineyard, but when the landlord sends the people to come and collect the fruit, they kill all the people who come to collect it. They, they, they want to claim it for themselves. They say, this is ours. And God is saying, no, no, that's rightfully mine. That's exactly what he's trying to picture with this unfaithful witness of these stewards of his temple, of his meeting place, which means to say for all of us today as well, the temple, the God's meeting place is not the place where, that we have that we invite God to come into. The temple is God's place of meeting that he invites us to come and meet him in. And yes, there are plenty of places where what Jesus said about the temple was misunderstood, was twisted, that said that he was claiming to say, I'm going to destroy this physical temple building and in three days I'm going to raise it up again. In those situations, he was clearly referring to his own death and resurrection. And yet, there were actually lots of other places where Jesus did prophesy about the destruction of that physical temple building, which took place in 70 AD. Places like Matthew 24. Jesus' disciples, they come in, they're looking around at the temple, they're all impressed at the structures and all the architecture and everything that's going on. I mean, they're taking selfies of themselves and posting them on Instagram. Look, Jesus, look at this, they're saying. And then Jesus says to them, do you, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So what Jesus is picturing here in our passage with this cursing of the fig tree is the coming judgment on the temple. That's what he's prophesying is is coming for this temple, particularly on the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who were the stewards of this place. He's talking about the removal and ultimate replacement of this temple. Why? Because, first of all, this temple, although it has the appearance of health, the appearance of fruitfulness, it's a show. It's nothing more than a show, and it's no longer producing any fruit. Secondly, because Jesus' plan has always been to remove those temporary meeting places and replace them with something new and permanent in himself. When we consider everything that we just said in that last point about God's desire that this be a house of prayer for all nations, that's what he intended the temple to be. I think we see, along with the inclusivity of the gospel message, that Jesus also intends to reveal his ultimate replacement of this temporary temple with his own flesh. Why? Because Jesus is the true and better temple. Why? Because he provides access now to God that breaks down those walls which formerly were keeping people out. 
He rips apart those curtains which keep us out from the direct presence and interaction with God. He tears those apart. That's why Jesus is the true and better temple, because he gives us direct access to God now. Which means the thing that's different about Christianity and remains different about Christianity to this day is that when Jesus comes, he doesn't say, let me show you the way to find God. That's what every other religion will tell you. I'll show you the way to find God. When Jesus comes, he says, I am God, come to find you. Very different. Which means that now the meeting place with God, where his presence dwells specially, is no longer a, a, a meeting place. It's no longer a temple, a building. It's the person of Jesus Christ himself. God, come to earth. It means you never need to come to a place. You don't need to come to a church in order to meet with God. You don't need to come to some special temple. You don't need to go on a trip to Jerusalem, to the Wailing Wall. You don't need to do anything like that any longer, when you come to meet with Jesus in prayer, you're coming to the new, restored, eternal temple. The meeting place between God and mankind that will never be destroyed and where all are welcome to come. Which means God's purpose for His church is then restored when we come to the place where His presence now dwells. In the person of Jesus Christ. But, even as amazing as that is to consider, okay, great, maybe you've already seen the problem. Does anybody see Jesus right now? If you do, tell me, but no. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven. And he's not coming back until the end of human history as we know it. So how are we supposed to meet with God in this new temple if the temple's no longer here? The answer is we don't. We don't travel to a temple to meet with God anymore. We become the temple ourselves. This can be really confusing, so follow me. I've given you a lot of different meeting places here. Now we're saying the temple is here. It's here in you if you know Jesus. Think about it. If the temple, the meeting place between God and humanity is where God causes his presence to dwell specially in a way that's unique from the way that he dwells everywhere. What that means is, and this, I never thought of this before, all we studied in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, where Jesus promises the giving of the Holy Spirit, along with empowering our witness, what that means is that Jesus is promising when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we become the temple now where God causes His Spirit to dwell. His Spirit now dwells in us. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. he writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Just think about that for a moment. Wow. What that means now when it comes to Jesus' words, my house will be called a house of prayer. It's pretty incredible. It means, first of all, you yourself, individually, you, if you know Jesus as your Savior today and His Spirit dwells in you, you are a temple where God's Spirit dwells. You become a house of prayer, a meeting place between God and humanity where prayer and communication with God is to be the defining characteristic of your life. 
You, as a house of God, prayer is to be the defining characteristic of your life. It also means when we gather together as a church family, uh, either here in our home groups or pods, or you meet together in each other's homes or out for dinner, whatever it is, we become collectively a house of prayer. We're collectively a house of prayer where prayer is to be the defining characteristic of our presence here in this community, here in this city, here in our neighborhoods. People would describe us, prayer was something that identifies us. I would characterize those people, that group of people, with prayer. I mean, we talked last Sunday about identity, how that drives mission. Think of your identity as a temple where God's Spirit dwells. What would be different about your prayer life if we understood ourselves individually and collectively in this way as a house of prayer? How would your prayer life be different? How would it affect the way you pray or the way we pray all together if we truly grasped the magnitude of what it means to be a temple, a house of God where God's Spirit dwells? Well, as we learn and grow in our understanding and love of prayer over these next weeks together and work to make prayer the defining characteristic of our lives and of our life as a church, I'm so excited to find out. Because as we dig into this together, I believe we're going to see what that looks like when we truly seek to be a people individually and as a church, a house of prayer. Let's pray together. I would ask at this time, those of you who are helping me to serve communion, if you'd come forward. Living God, we are humbled and amazed. We consider everything that we read in your word about people traveling these great distances to meet with you in this place that you'd caused your spirit to dwell, that that's now us. When we put our faith in you, it's more than our minds can understand and comprehend. I don't know what all of us would say, but I know from my own life, I I confess the defining characteristic of my life, I would not say is a house of prayer. Confess that and I repent, oh God. May you grow that love of prayer in me. Would you grow that in each one of us? We would see ourselves daily, both when we meet together and in our individual lives everywhere we go as the place where your spirit dwells where we interact with you in a way that's a witness and a testimony that's calling others to that same restored relationship. It's a privilege that's been won because of Jesus. And so we humbly say thank you. We humbly ask you by your spirit to grow that in each one of us, that understanding of that identity in a way that changes us and shapes us. We ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.